The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. I trust that most of you uh, on your way in this morning were maybe handed a, a bulletin with a lot of the announcements and things that are going on in our church right now, uh, but I did want to point your attention to one specific section, or maybe you didn't get one, uh, but uh, there's just a little note there from the Slater family, from my family. I uh, just want to express to you as our church family the uh, huge amount of gratitude we have to you if you participated in pounding us. I learned what that word was uh, when we got here, but this is the first chance I've had to address you since we've gotten here. But any of the gifts, any of the, the goods that you gave to us to help us as we transition from Kentucky to here, um, as you might imagine, it's, it's been a pretty big transition. And just to know, not even the stuff, but just to know that we have a church family that loves us and cares about us, even though you barely know us, is just a huge encouragement to our souls. And so I just want to, from the bottom of our hearts, say thank you for already supporting us in such a big way. We really do appreciate it. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. So Pastor Tim is gone in Panama, but we are going to continue going through Galatians. Today, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start actually in verse 9. We're going to pick up in the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 9. But even just going around this morning and talking to some of you before service started, I know that there are several here. You haven't been here in several weeks, or you know, I, I don't want to assume that everybody who's here now has been here before. Maybe this is your first time. And so I think it would be helpful before we got into chapter 3 today. We're about halfway through the book of Galatians. It would be helpful for you to have a uh, just an update about what's going on. Why are we going through this book? What's he talking about? So I want to take just a few minutes to remind you of that. The book of Galatians was actually a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. Yeah? So he's he's very creative with titles, obviously, right? So he wrote this letter. Paul, if you remember back in Acts chapter 13, was with Barnabas when they went around and started all of these churches. So Paul, they're very near and dear to Paul's heart, and he's writing to them because he's concerned about something he's been hearing. He's been hearing that there are false teachers, phony teachers that are coming in and they're spreading two lies. The first lie that they're spreading is that Paul is not the apostle that he says he is. He does not command the authority and the weight that he says he commands, and so you should not trust what he says. But then they have the second lie that they've been spreading. Not only should you not trust Paul, you shouldn't trust the message that he's given you of the gospel because it's an incomplete message. He's not giving you the full reality of what's there. Yes, salvation is through Jesus, but he's leaving something out. You actually do have to continue to adhere to the traditions of the Jews if you want to actually be saved. After all, Jesus was Jewish. After all, salvation comes from the Jews, and so it makes sense. You have to continue doing these rituals. And they're teaching these things, and Paul addresses that false teaching very early on in the letter to the Galatians. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says this. This is how he responds to him. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But then listen to what he says in verse 7. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Did you catch that? 
the way that churches are led away from the gospel is not by false teachers coming in and scrapping everything that's there and starting afresh. The way that a false gospel creeps into the church is through distortions, little changes, minor variations. But according to Paul, if you change even one part about the gospel, you lose it all. And so he says, I am astonished that you're walking away from this. And so he writes this letter to bring them back into the fold, to remind them of the pure gospel. And he's already gotten to that in Galatians. We're past that already. But in chapter 2, verse 16, you can see where he says there that, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He uses a specific word there, justified. It's a theological word. It's a, it's a legal term. What does it mean? To be justified is for someone with authority to actually declare you to be innocent of a crime, for you to be not guilty, but instead for you to be pure, to be righteous. It would be as if there was a judge or a jury and you were on trial and their final verdict was not guilty. That was very anticlimactic. I need a hammer. But not guilty, innocent. And that's what your salvation is. You are saved from the penalties of your crimes when you are justified by God. And he says that is the only place that you can find salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're at in the book of Galatians. Now we come to chapter 3, verse 9. And in this part of Galatians, where we're at now, what we're looking at today, we're not, we're not exploring how salvation is, is only found in Jesus. We're answering a question. Paul is using this passage to answer a question. Why? Why can you not have faith and trust in your own abilities to be saved and to be right before God, why do you have to look to Jesus for that? We're answering why today. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look through this passage. So let's go ahead and start. I'm going to start in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In order to explain the reasoning that Paul has for that why, why can't I be righteous in God's eyes, good in God's eyes, based on the things that I do and, and only in the things that Jesus does, he, he draws on some very specific Old Testament language. Okay, so in verse 9, he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed. He uses the word blessed. But in the very next verse, Paul quotes from a place in the Old Testament, place Deuteronomy 27, and he says that uh, there he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed. There is this comparison going on. He is contrasting what it means to be blessed and what it means to be cursed. 
Now, I know I'm kind of jumping around here going back to Deuteronomy, but in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 30, basically all those chapters are in Deuteronomy. Moses has basically run through and reminded all of Israel of the laws they're about to go into, the promised land that they've been led through the wilderness for so long, and they're about to enjoy, they're about to conquer their enemies, and God is about to bless them. And so he goes through these various blessings and curses. And he says, if you obey my law, if you do every word of my law that I've given to you, you will be blessed. But if you do not obey, if instead you break my law, you will be cursed. And we find out through those chapters that the blessing of God is the presence of God. It is fellowship with God. It is communion with God. It is, and it is every good thing that goes along with that. But most of all, it's God. But a curse of God is his judgment. It is his separation and every bad thing that comes with that. So it's either or. Either you can be blessed by obeying the law or cursed by not obeying the law. And he says here in Galatians 3.10 that all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. In other words, there is no way for you to obtain the blessing and mercy and presence and fellowship with God by works of the law. How does that work? Why? I want to draw your attention to one word, one word that's in this passage that can help us understand why to answer the question, why? Look at verse 10 again with me. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. All things written in the book of the law and do them. The reason that you can't obtain righteousness And the reason that you can't be described as an innocent person before God is because, yeah, you you might do pretty good in some areas of Christian conduct, in some areas of morality, but you fail in others. You can't do it all. And if you are going to go try to get your righteousness and get your goodness and your approval from God based on the way that you act, it's all or nothing. That's the rule. That's the rule that we're presented with. In in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, when he's giving the blessings and the curses, he says, all, you've got to keep it all. It is a package. There's another place in the New Testament that really lays this out clearly for us in the book of James. James chapter 2, I invite you to turn there with me if you'd like to, but you don't have to. In James chapter 2, this is the way that James puts it. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Well, Scott, how does that work? How can can one failure on my part make me accountable for all the law of God? Just think about this for a moment. If you're using a chain to drag something or to pull something or to hoist something up, how many links on that chain has to break before the entire chain fails? One, it does you no good to look at what you were pulling or what you were lifting with that chain and say, but all the other links work great. It doesn't matter because the chain failed. One link that's broken causes the entire thing to fail. 
And that's exactly what the point is here in James is that, listen, you can follow every part of the law to a T. Do you remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, I've done all those things. What does Jesus say? You have one thing left to do. And because he was not able to do that one thing, he walked away very sorrowful. If you keep going in James, we find out that this is even more startling than what we thought. So look with me at verse 11. I'll start again at verse 10 just for the context. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now listen to this. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Did you hear what he just did? Basically what he's saying is that, listen, if you murder somebody, you might as well have committed adultery. You're just as guilty of adultery as you are of murder. He puts adultery on par with murder as being wrong, as being just enough to condemn you to God's judgment. I think a common objection to that, maybe we don't voice it, but we oftentimes think it. How on earth can that be fair? How on earth could God look at me like a murderer if all I've done is told a little lie? How could God look at me like I'm an adulterer if all I've done is taken this small thing that that person isn't even going to miss? How does that work? Well, if you look, verse 11 of James 2 actually has the answer within it. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. The basis of the wrongdoing of any of these acts is not the act itself. And the basis and the reasoning Paul's using is not the act itself. It's not how your actions impact other people, whether it's good or bad, whether they're not going to miss that little eraser you took or, you know, whether or not you've completely destroyed a family by, by you know, committing adultery with, with one of the, the spouses. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with who gave the law. And that's God. It's a package. If you're going to try and be good in God's eyes, You've got to do it based on what God says. For you to try to pick and choose only those things that you want to follow, only those things that you want to do, and then to say the rest aren't that important, that's not the package that God has given. Think about it like this. What's the difference between going to a five-star restaurant and a buffet? What's the difference? It's who's in charge. If you've ever been to like a, I'm talking like a really, really fancy, like really nice five-star restaurant with like this world-famous chef, what you're going to find is that the menu is usually pretty small and that there's not a lot of options to choose from and that this chef has normally put together this meal to where everything is perfectly balanced, to where you've got your main entree, you've got your side, you might, he might even have paired it with a drink or a certain dessert. And listen, when you go to a five-star restaurant and they serve you that, that chef has used their professional opinion to put that together into a whole package. And if you were to try to go to that chef and say, you know what, this sounds good, but I actually don't like that stuff. Can you replace it with this? 
What an offense that would be to that chef because he has put that together perfectly to where now you've replaced it. Instead of getting this, this amazing thing, you've just asked for a bowl of macaroni and cheese. How offended would you be by that? But when you go to a buffet, who's in charge? Woo-hoo. You are in charge. You can go and get as much food as you want. Who cares about portion sizes? Who cares about how many plates? It doesn't matter if you get on the same plate a steak and spaghetti or macaroni and cheese and ice cream. And listen, as you're going along, there's a smorgasbord of options and you can choose what you want and you can leave what you don't. Oh, those steamed vegetables don't look as good as they did when they were sitting in the pan and now you don't want them? That's fine, just leave them on your plate. We'll throw them away later. The difference is who's in charge. And if the way that we approach God's law is to say that I'm going to be righteous to God and he's going to see me as righteous because I follow some of his commands, but not all of his commands, that is an offense to God because you show that he is not your God, you are your God because you get to pick the commands that are important. You get to choose where it's important to be obedient and where it's not important to be obedient. You get to set the standard and say, this law is more important than this law. And if I keep all these important ones, I don't have to worry about those little ones. That's not true. That is not what scripture teaches. You can't treat God's law like it's a buffet. It requires full obedience, all that the law commanded. And not only does it require full obedience, it requires continual obedience. It's not just, I was obedient, I was a good kid. It's, I've got to be good now. It's, I've got to hold my temper in check now. It's your whole life. And listen, I, I think it's true that there are many people that will do this. We, we play with God's law like it's a buffet. <clears throat> and what we'll usually end up doing is we will pick the things that we are very good at doing, and then we will look at other people that are not good at doing those things, and we will judge ourselves based on them, not on God's perfect standard. I don't know what it is for you, but maybe you take a certain amount of pride in how involved you are in our church in all the different areas that you serve, maybe in the different ways that you give. And what you maybe do is you, you look at other people and you say, you know what, I don't think I've ever seen them in Sunday school. You know what, I don't remember the last time I saw them come to the evening service. And what you're doing is you're looking on yourself and you're saying to yourself, I am pleasing God, they are not. Or maybe there are certain things that you refrain from doing in your life and you think that means that God is happier with you. Maybe you don't cuss. Or maybe you've never taken a drink in your life. And when you see other people cursing or drinking, you say to yourself, man, what a heathen. I don't do that. But they do. God must be so upset with them. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe you look at the things that you do and even the things that are in secret that you don't flaunt in front of other people. Maybe you're a generous, kind, giving person and you think that for some reason that makes God think better of you because you are so generous with what he has blessed you with. And you looked at that and you have, there's a little part of you that thinks that God is happier with you because you do those things. 
But I hate to break it to you. There are going to be things in your life that you don't do, that you don't follow up to. But much more common than that, I think, than people who actually do take pride in things they do, I think a lot more of us are the opposite person. And it's not that we think God is pleased with us, but we are faced every day, every week, every hour sometimes with our failures and with the ways that we displease God. And you can actually completely understand why Paul uses the word of a curse here because that's exactly how you feel. You feel like you are under a curse, this heavy, heavy burden of a law that you've got to keep every jot and tittle if God is going to look at you as a righteous person. You get daily reminders of how you have failed God. You look at your kids and where their lives are now, and you think to yourself, man, I wish I would have been a better parent. I wish I could have done them better. And you weigh on yourself a certain amount of guilt because of that. You know that you should be doing better, but you're just not able to. You know that you shouldn't struggle with this anymore, but you still do. You know that it displeases God, but there is nothing that you've been able to do to rid yourself of it. And because of that, you feel a deep sense of shame. Every morning, you wake up and say, God, I'm going to live for you today. Today is the day I'm going to live for you. And at the end of the day, you put your head on your pillow, torn down and beaten because you've broken yet another promise to God. You'll get into a place in your life where you're in a really good groove and you know that you're living to please him, but then you'll slip up again. You'll fail and you'll begin to ask yourself the question like this. Am I even a Christian? How could God ever love me? How could I ever be welcomed by somebody that I have hurt so much? You struggle just as much with relying on works of the law, if that describes you, as it does a self-righteous person that thinks they are good enough for God because you're still using your actions to determine how God feels about you. The Bible talks about our relationship with sin in terms of slavery, in terms of bondage, that we cannot get out of ourselves. And that indeed is true. You cannot rid yourself of the curse of the law on your own. There is no way of escape from the curse. The only way out is a divine rescue. I'd like to share with you one of my favorite passages of Scripture from Romans chapter 8 that I think illustrates this rescue for us very well. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, it starts off by saying this, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sounds kind of familiar to what he was saying in Galatians when he said that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. God has done what the law can't do. How did he do it? By sending his own son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see what he did there? You can't do it on your own. There's got to be a divine rescue, and God has sent that rescuer. His name is Jesus Christ. You want to know the amazing thing about the gospel, the amazing thing about the good news of Jesus? The way that you are forgiven of your sin is not because God has lowered his standards of righteousness. When we say that God forgives for sin, we are not saying that he just overlooks it. And we're not saying that he's gone soft. We're not saying that he's just said, well, if you can just keep these things up here, you'll be good. Don't worry about those things down there. That's not how he does it. How does he do it? He sends his son. And what does it say happens in the work of Christ in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled? Do you remember Jesus's words? Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. God still requires perfection if you are going to stand before him righteous. The difference is it's not your perfection he looks at. It's the perfection that is only found in Christ. We say, Scott, you know, who, who on earth could ever be perfect? Who on earth could ever follow every single law, every single requirement that is in God's word? You can't, but there is one who did. And his name is Jesus. He did. The amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus is the only person in all of human history that ever actually earned the blessing of God when all the rest of us have earned the curse. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that what it means to be righteous before God is that there is a trade that has taken place. And that happened at the cross. That's where... Paul takes us to in Galatians 3. Let me read those verses. We didn't read through verse 13, but let's look at it now. Verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Hanged on a tree sounds like a cross. Sounds like an instrument of torture and of death. But listen, The real pain that Jesus felt on the cross was not a physical pain. It was the weight of the judgment from God that we have heaped up for ourselves. And that is what he felt. He uses a word here that Christ redeemed us. That word redeemed, I think I've shared with you about this before in the last time I was preaching, but that word redeemed It's a word that is most often used when talking about purchasing a slave's freedom. Yes, you are enslaved to the bondage of sin. It does feel like a great weight placed upon your shoulders, and it does feel crushing. But the work of Jesus was done to redeem you, was to purchase your freedom so that that weight is no longer on your shoulders but it is on Christ's. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
When Jesus was on the cross, there was an exchange that happened, a trade that took place. The blessing of God that Jesus had earned by his perfect life was given to us. And the guilt and the shame and the weight and the burden of sin and judgment of God was poured out on Christ on the cross so that we no longer have to trust in our own righteousness, but we trust in God's, in Christ's. That's what the definition of grace is. That sounds unfair to you that we, that there would be such a trade. That sounds unfair because it is unfair. It's the most unfair trade that's ever happened in all of history. The definition of grace is unearned favor. Unearned. You did nothing to earn it. It is a gift. We enjoy favor with God because of someone else's work. That's amazing. So I just want to remind you of that today. That's why. Why can't you be righteous before God because of your own goodness? It's because you're not nearly good enough for God. But Jesus is. And the promise of the gospel, as he said here, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you want to be righteous before God? Do you want to be able to approach God and have fellowship with God and no longer feel the burden of weight and shame and sin for all of your constant failures? You can do that by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus. What does that mean, though? I feel like we, we throw that word out there. We throw that out there. We say faith. Just have faith. What does that mean for me to have faith in this instance? Well, it means a few specific things. First of all, to have faith in the work of Christ means that you trust that Jesus succeeded where you failed. It means, number two, to trust that he paid the penalty you deserved. And then finally, number three, to have faith in Jesus means that you trust that his righteousness fulfills everything God would ever require of you. So that now when you go to stand before God, he no longer looks at you and your sin, but he sees only Jesus and his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's how we can be righteous before God. So look, I don't know which one of those people you were that I described earlier. I don't know if you were the person that actually has a lot of pride in the way you live your life and you look on those around you with contempt and scorn and judgment. But I have a feeling that there's a lot of you in here that instead of feeling that, there's actually a burden and a weight on you because you're terrified that God will not be pleased with you. I just want to encourage you today in the same way that that Paul has in chapter 3. I want to remind you of the cross of Christ and the judgment that he took on himself for you so that if you do place your faith in him, you need not fear the judgment of God. You need not try harder. You need not be better because Jesus was plenty good for you and for me. If that's something that you've never done, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus in that way, by trusting that he succeeded where you failed, by trusting that he took the penalty you deserved, and trusting that his righteousness will fulfill everything God ever requires of you, if you've never made that decision, 
please do not leave here today without coming to talk to me. You need to respond by putting your faith in Christ, by no longer looking to your own self and your own goodness and your own works and your own traditions to be good in God's eyes, but instead look to Christ. Come talk to me, talk to Pastor Matt, talk to people here that brought you here that you trust, but please do not make that decision and leave today and not talk to somebody about it because we wanna help you guide, we wanna guide you through what it looks like to live a life of faith. If you would please join me in prayer. Heavenly Lord, we are reminded today of a truth that can either create a great burden on our souls or provide an indescribable relief. That righteousness can be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the most unfair trade in all of human history, his righteousness for our curse. God, I pray now that if there are those here that you are working on their hearts, that feel burdened with the shame of sin, Lord, that you would relieve that burden, that they would go to the cross, that they would see the suffering Savior and know that it is only his righteousness that can save them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.